Everyone in Shaker Heights was talking about it that summer. How Isabel, the last of the Richardson children, had finally gone around the bend and burned the house down. The present moment in U.S. political culture is characterized by a profound division between Democratic and Republican camps and their followers, which erupted into the violent attack of the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, maybe another act of burning the house down or an attempt. The violent outbreak of January 6 was fueled by what Jonathan Rauch has called uh, President Trump's troll propaganda a strategy of disavowing professionals, medical doctors, academics, climate change scientists, and first and foremost, the Black Lives Matter movement. It seems that there are two camps with little overlaps, and the past, present, and futures of the American common ground narrative is imperiled. Earlier this year, a special issue of American Studies, edited by Cedric Essie, Heike Powell, and Boris Forman, asked this question in the title adding a question mark to common ground, American democracy after Trump. Today's episode of Lady Fiction looks back at the historic and fictional moment long before our present, in the 1990s, as depicted in Celeste Ng's 2017 novel Little Fires Everywhere. In this novel, we encounter conflicts that erupt around different lifestyles and choices along class lines and property lines attached to white privilege, a line of argument that was strengthened in the successful Hulu series um, Little Fires Everywhere, starring Carrie Washington. The novel opens with a violent act of arson of Isabel Richardson when a family home is burned down in the utopian pleasantness of the community is shattered. Little Fires Everywhere tackles motherhood, art and photography and concepts of the family in US culture, all of which are key research interests of my guest today, whom you already heard quoting the opening phrase. So Julia Feist is professor and deputy chair of American studies at the University of Regensburg. She received her PhD from Harvard University and her Venia Legendi from the Catholic University of Eichstätt, Ingolstadt. She was Max Kade, Distinguished Visiting Professor at Notre Dame University, and her research interests include North American literary and visual cultures, African American, race and ethnic studies, migration and diaspora studies, space and urban studies, inequality class and poverty studies, and transnational feminism. She is the author of Cultures of Emancipation, Photography, Race and Modern American Literature, and the yet unpublished manuscript Precarious Belongings, The Unmaking of the American Home, 1980s to Now. And as you can tell, she's a great expert on the topics that are uh, brewing in a Little Fires Everywhere, and I think that come to, to fruition in the present uh, division of uh, U.S. political culture and the common police. So thank you, Julia, for joining me today, and thank you for being here. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. 
As you already mentioned, Celeste Ng's novel is set in the 1990s uh, at the height of the Clinton-Lewinsky political sex scandal. And as much as the U.S. is yearning for the sensation of the scandal, the Midwestern town or or neighborhood um, of Shaker Heights is yearning for its very own scandal. But while it considers the Clinton scandal comical, It considers its own scandal very serious, and it concerns the adoption of a Chinese baby by white parents, which evolves into a custody battle. And this battle upends the very orderly world of the suburb of Shaker Heights in Cleveland, Ohio. There's other issues um, that upend this orderly world, but we'll talk about that in a little while, I'm sure. The book was or came out in 2017. It's very much a book of our times, despite being set in the 1990s, uh, also in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement um, against systemic racism and police violence that you already mentioned, Steffi. It discusses timely issues such as uh, racial identities, mixed race identities, cross-racial adoption, Uh, racism, white supremacy, but also motherhood and issues pertaining to sexual politics, such as uh, reproductive technologies, uh, ways, various ways of having children or giving up children, abortion, uh, and so on. Yes, thank you. And I, I agree, this is a super timely novel. I read it a few years back and I came back to it when I was thinking about you know, what I would want to discuss on this podcast. And uh, when we when we first talked about it, we both found that it had so many things that speak more to the present now. So the last couple of months, maybe than the last few years. And we start out, and this is what I like about the novel. So I like in Medias Res beginnings, and I teach the short story a lot because, it, you know, short stories have that. But the novel also starts in the middle of this, at the end of the conflict, I should say, but in the middle of the action. So it starts with Izzy, the youngest child of the Richardson family, setting her own home on fire and bringing catastrophe over her family in an act that nobody really understands in the beginning. So we have to, and as you already said, the real conflict uh, is about this adoption case in the community uh, where people are so divided over the moral dimensions of where does this little Chinese child belong? Should she be taken back or not to her her birth mother and her biological mother? But the conflict's also in the Richardson family, and it's introduced by two newcomers to the community, Mia and her daughter Pearl, who decide that they want to settle. And 11 months later, the youngest daughter of the Richardson family puts the house on fire, burns it basically down. So let's talk maybe a little bit about, without spoiling too much, this is one of the, the key issues here. Let's talk a little bit about the form and uh, the arrangement of the novel. So um, the key characters are the Richardsons, then Mia and Pearl, and the overall community of Shaker Heights, a suburb or utopian community. How did how did you how did you like those characters? Maybe I'll I'll start with the setting and the Shaker Heights setting, and then we can sort of morph into the characters who live there and who move into this place. Uh, as you said, it's a it's a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. It's a planned community from 1912, uh, so it's kind of a predecessor to the 1950s suburbs, uh, mostly white suburbs um, that we get to know after the Second World War. It's a community 
that is set on order and ordinances uh, and rules. So the style, the color of your home, it's all prescribed for the supposed aesthetic harmony, um, which is mostly white after all. It's supposed to work as a planned community against the novel says the unseemly, the unpleasant and the disastrous. Mm -hmm. And that has very strong racial and class undertones. We'll get into that. Supposedly, it's built um, for more equality and diversity, except it doesn't quite play out that way because it takes a great pride in uh, an ideology that was very popular in the 1990s, which is color blindness. So the thinking went uh, like this. Um, People thought equality um, of people would come about by not paying attention, basically, to the race at all, by not seeing race. Uh, And one of the daughters of Elena Richardson, Lexi says that, uh, I'm so Mm -hmm. glad we're living in a community that doesn't see race, which of course is just a very convenient sidestepping of all the underlying and very systemic racism and structural racism that um, this community is is built on. So it might like to think of itself as uh, colorblind within the purview of what came to be known later uh, under the Obama administration as a kind of post-racial America, right, Mm -hmm. where race wouldn't play such a big role anymore. But the racism is really prevalent in the novel, and there's many racist incidents. um, And it comes up in the kind of, you know, more subtle everyday racisms um, in sentences like that's used by by some of the teenage uh, children, when they talk about um, a classmate and say how much better she looked now that she has straightened her hair, right? Mm-hmm. And that's it. They're not talking, they're not using this as a as a discussion point about talking about race. It's just the kind of sentence that falls while they're sitting together in the TV room watching TV, uh, leisurely spending their afternoons. and Watching um, Jerry Springer. That's all they ever do with the kids. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Jerry Springer has a firm uh, a firm presence in this tiny community of Shaker, Shaker Heights. And it's interesting because actually the kids say that they watch it for different reasons. So one kid says uh, they're interested in the sheer difference of people. So how difficult and how different people can be from themselves the implication is uh, then another kid i think it's lexi says she watches it for anthropological reasons to just see what's going on and see how people start start hitting each other and it's it's a lot like margaret mead so this already shows her privilege uh, and her education because she she can argue in this vein and then a trip the 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 sporty, uh, cute, golden boy brother uh, of the four Richardson kids, he watches it just for, for the drama. And um, we get these four perspectives or three perspectives um, of those kids watching Jer- Jerry Springer. And uh, we at the same time also get this description of how they feel so self-assured by an authorial uh, commentator. So formally, um, we have a, a perspective where we're sometimes we're inside individual figures' heads. We have a, an in- internal focalization telling about people's thoughts and histories and why they are think the way they think. And it's all very reasonable when you read from a read about this from a certain character's perspective and then you get a different character uh, who sees things totally differently and uh, who also has a great claim to make and to me actually when I when I started thinking about the form how how these different perspectives are rendered and put aside next to each other next to each other 
I thought, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that this comes to a catastrophe in the end, because as you said, you know, racism is present, but people like to, to believe or tell themselves it's not. And of course, this is the house needs to be burnt down. So it really works through pitting different characters' views against each other, like a little bit like a 19th century novel. So it has an epic quality to it, where you get the whole display, the whole tableau of all the characters and their different mindsets. And then some events happen on the outside. That's the scandal around uh, the Chinese kid. And it burns. I mean, it, it brings everybody to on to the brink of their nerves and people start freaking out like big time. <laughs> so it's also a little bit like a Jerry Springer episode, you know, in the end. You, you can watch them falling over each other, uh, each other towards the end and just start escalating things. So, so that's why I really like the novel. Each character very much and staunchly lives in, in his or her own head. And it's very much a novel about perspectives. And it's neatly done because the novel never quite takes a stance on which perspective it prefers. Mm -hmm. um, so it comes across as a kind of omniscient narration. We also have a lot of dialogue between the various characters where they discuss not necessarily their positions, but what pertains to their lives and the, the scandals they, they deal with. But then we have these focalizers and they're mostly the women in the novel. I would say it's very much a novel centered on women's perspectives. Um, we have Elena's voice that's very strong. We got a lot of interior monologues of what she's thinking. But we also have to, we have other characters. We have Mia, whom she takes in as a tenant. We have her daughter, Pearl. We have Lexi. Um, um, so the so the focalizer switches mm. between these various parts. I find sometimes that they're really hard to, to, to stand when you read. <laughs> so yes. they're really not so likable because they're so full of themselves. So I have a, I picked this little uh, episode from uh, Elena, which you, which you already talked about. Um, so Elena is Mrs. Richardson. She's well-educated uh, and she, in, in one essay I read, was described as the voice of Shaker Heights. Mm-hmm. So Elena is the voice of Shaker Heights. She's a, a, a town girl, local girl. She grew up there. She inherited her house uh, from her parents who um, made investments in their own day. So she she basically is deeply rooted in Shaker Heights. And um, she has her own moral compass. And um, the way she talks about it is really a little bit offsetting. So here's a, here's a quote I have. Um, Uh, and this is about renting out the second house that the family owns to Mia and Pearl. Her parents had brought her up to do good. They had donated every year to the Humane Society and UNICEF and always attended local fundraisers, once winning a three-foot-tall stuffed bear at the Rotary Club's silent auction. Mrs. Richardson looked at the house as a form of charity. She kept the rent low and she rented only to people she felt were deserving but who had, for one reason or another, not quite gotten a fair shot in life. It pleased her to make up the difference. So this is Mrs. Robinson playing God a little bit. So, um, you know, renting out to Mia and Pearl, a single mother who's an artist, it becomes an act of charity. And when she talks to Mia about her art, she also a little later insists on buying one of the photographs. And she says, Why should our artists keep producing great art if we don't support them? And it's such a, you know, <laughs> a position of 
privilege of benevolence of, you know, saying, oh, you know, I have this money, but I'm going to spend it on the poor artist. And uh, in the in the course of events, the conflict between Elena's way of thinking and Mia's uh, way of thinking comes also to a to a standstill because it's so she's she's really judgmental uh in what she does she's really like oh uh you know uh she she offers to um hire mia uh, as a housekeeper and uh, the two families start to mingle in weird ways and the kids transition from one mother to another mother Uh, And this is where all the motherhood troubles start. They become surrogate mothers. Yes. For their their respective daughters. Yes. um, Elena Richardson is a do-gooder, right? As you said, um, she considers the house which she rents at sub-market value as a form of charity for Mia and her daughter. She thinks of Mia, I think, as what's called a deserving poor woman, okay? So she might be poor in terms of finances and furniture and belongings. She can only afford a rental home, mm. which the Winslow duplex is uh, that Elena owns. Uh, but she's deserving because she's cultured, right? She's an artist. She has also moved or decided to move to Shaker Heights because of uh, because it's supposed to be a good school district. So Elena really likes that. Of course, she's on the school board and uh, instead instrumental in fostering that kind of um, culture and education in the community. Elena fits the setting so perfectly. Um, She is, as you said, the voice of of Shaker Heights. And she's not a typical, as we would read it in in a novel about the 50s suburbia, she's not a typical home wife. I mean, she has four teenage children she's really busy with. But she also has a job. She's a journalist, but she is uh, a local journalist. She's never made it to a major news outlet. So a little bit of a career, but not too much. Yes, and she writes about what she calls progress, but progress for her is things like improved recycling or the remodeling of old um, building structures or things like that. So she doesn't really get into the politics of the place. But what do you think about, I mean... To play devil's advocate here, that is progress. That is community progress on the smallest <laughs> level. So, so I mean, and I, that's something that I've been grappling with. She really, you know, she does contribute a little bit to the good of society, and that's that was a point where I also, I, I can also latch on to that. I can understand that, but it's the judgmental part that I'm like, ah, come on. Don't tell people what to do. And, and poor artists, deserving poor. Uh, don't tell them what to do. I mean, the, the, the Richardsons, they know important people. This is Pearl's perspective. They knew important people. Uh, the mayor, the director of the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, even the younger Richardsons had it. And this is Pearl's observation. This sureness in themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the sureness is, I think, what spells out as white privilege of not having to care about Yes. You know, the fridge yes. is always full. You know, you don't have to worry about getting clothes. It's an essential safety net that is in place mm-hmm. that people forget about, these these the Richardsons forget about. And uh, Elena is so ensconced in her doing well that she doesn't understand that people don't like her. Like she yes, doesn't she, get she it. Can't get, 
out of her head and her, you know, eternal interior monologues are eternal self-justifications of the kind of life she has planned meticulously that include, you know, a child, a car, a mortgage, a husband. It's very orderly and she's very strict on these rules and she's incredibly afraid off the kind of she calls this a spark several times which ties in with the with the with the topic of fire of course that she sees in mia who moves in with her daughter and somehow brings that with her Um, but it's a mystery in the beginning right and the novel also comes across at times as a kind of whodunit like it does in the beginning about the fire um it's set up in a way that we want to know well who set the fire and we're only going to learn towards the very very end that it was the very daughter actually if the outcast daughter of elena herself But the ideals, I think, upon which the Shaker community was set originally only go so far, right? She says, well, it was supposed to not be racist and diverse and so on. But, well, yes, it's idealist, but it's also pragmatic. Um, And maybe I can read a little part uh, from the novel about that, that too. Because when, um, when it is first built and it progresses and... You know, they want to take a stance when Brown versus Board of Education happens and the boy, the bus boycotts and so on, but only so far. So it reads, When the troubles of the outside world made their presence felt in Shaker Heights, a bomb at the home of a black lawyer, the community felt obliged to show that this was not the Shaker way. A neighborhood association sprang up to encourage integration in a particular Shaker Heights manner loans to encourage white families to move into black neighborhoods, loans to encourage black families to move into white neighborhoods, regulations forbidding for sale signs in order to prevent white flight, and so on. But then, three generations of shaker reverence for order and rules and decorum would stay with Elena too, and she would never quite be able to bring those two ideas into balance. So in 1968, at 15, she turned on the television and watched chaos. And she can only consider this chaos, of course, flaring up across the country like brush fires. Here's the topic of fire again. Martin Luther King Jr., um, then Bobby Kennedy, riots in Chicago, Memphis, Baltimore, everywhere, everywhere, things were falling apart. And she asked herself, uh, Elena does, did you have to burn down the old to make way for the new? And her answer would be clearly no, you wouldn't need to burn down the old uh, power dynamics that are based on white uh, supremacy. Um, and the text continues, it was not that she was afraid. It was simply that Shaker Heights, despite its idealism, was a pragmatic place. And the pragmatic outcome of this supposedly progressive place is uh, the racist incidents that were going Exactly. And uh, ultimate uh, fire with. that, you know, burns it down. Yeah. Yeah. I like the pragmatism, you know, I like how, how the community tells itself we're pragmatic. We only, you know, we, we, it's like a fig leaf argument. We're for diversity and we're for equality, but it only goes so far. For in, in preparation for this, so Shaker Heights is a real place. <laughs> it's the place yes. where Celeste Ing grew up. Uh, and of course, the big question is how much of the fictional Shaker Heights uh, uh, can we find reflected in present-day Shaker Heights? And um, Shaker Heights Ohio has a, a promotional video on its website, um, which mm-hmm. I watched uh, before taping this uh, this episode. It's a really nice 
video that shows you well-to-do people, entrepreneurs, happy families, diverse families, um, and everybody, all happy people. And basically, the video says the benefits of Shaker Heights is not its distinctive home, not its lush parks, it's its residents that are welcoming to all and embrace their differences. Um, and the, the video ends on uh, looking for creating a future and celebrating community. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if we go <laughs> back to this notion of it didn't work for this Richardson family uh, in the 90s, it seems that the promo video adds, it's also a fig leaf argument, it adds this diversity um to its vocabulary and says uh, we want to work with community and you know we celebrate our differences of course it's a promo video for a town i mean you know Mm -hmm. you can't expect too much from this but it's it seems like a continuation of that dystopian self-forlorn uh community that you know likes to think of itself as is so progressive but also pragmatic so we have to be pragmatic. We can't yes. be all over the place. We can't have fires burning. We can't have rioters or protesters marching. That is clearly too much. Everybody stick to their own little little blankie and keep within their own little framework and then mm-hmm. all things will be okay. Yes. It's really interesting what you what you said about the added on vocabulary of, you know, diversity, inclusion, belonging. Those are also the kind of buzzwords. Um, I think of the summer of 2020 and here we're in very contemporary times again, too. And let's not forget that Shaker Heights in and of itself doesn't have financial troubles. It's a very well-to-do community, but it is part of Cleveland, Ohio, which is a major deindustrialized town in the U.S. And all its accompanying problems uh, of unemployment, educational problems, uh, race um, segregation, and so on. And I think the title, Little Fires Everywhere, I mean, of course, it, it pertains to the actual fire that's not supposed to happen in a community like that, right? But it's the, it's the bus that that does happen and it pertains to the all the problems under the surface of this very orderly world but of course the burned home is also a very common image that's used as a sign of the collapse of finances of the collapse of the housing market um, starting in the uh, 1980s and 90s and of course becoming very prevalent in the latest crisis of 2007 to 2008 so burnt down homes or, or homes set on fire are one of the main visual markers um, of a landscape of deindustrialization and financial breakdown that is surrounding Shaker Heights, if you want to think of it as a little, you know, happy island of whiteness that, that cannot be talked away. And I think the title um, is attuned to that kind of reality as yes, well. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about the financial crisis and the home and uh, the burned down home is a, is a marker. Thank you for this. This is such, such a great, a great observation uh, also from your research. Um, we also have to talk about domesticity in general and the home, of course. So we we already said this, Two mothers, two different family styles, two different um, narratives of kinship, so biological kinship, adoption, the scandal around this. Of course, we also have the installment of the mother as the center of the home, as the homemaker in this context. So Elena, unsurprisingly, is a, is a, is a mom of four, a working mom of four in her uh, lush home. But Mia uh, uses makeshift homes and improvises all the time because she's an artist. And whenever one of her projects is finished, she goes somewhere else. Uh, And she's also a mother and she takes her 
daughter-in-law. There's no talk of a father figure, and uh, we don't find out until almost until the end how Mia uh, got pregnant and uh, what the mystery around this is. But I would suggest not to give this away. But let's let's, <laughs> let's talk motherhood. Elena is is an over is is a busy but caring mother, and Mia is too. Mm -hmm. They are, and it's so interesting how there was how well at least one daughter, and later actually the other two of Elena becomes kind of a surrogate daughter of Mia's, while Mia's daughter Pearl is very taken by the Richardson's kind of lifestyle and display of motherhood. She loves being at their home where, you know, Elena is very courteous to her and, and appears to include her in the family, except at some point she will also say, well, Pearl is, is not part of our family, uh, like, so you need to understand that, right? While Izzy, who is the outcast, um, sort of the rebellious youngest daughter of the Richardson, she becomes the artistic assistant of Mia and finds her to be um, incredibly warm and welcoming and understanding when it comes to the hardships of life, of the complexities of life. That's also something Lexi, the other daughter, finds when she herself um, becomes pregnant and uh, gets an abortion at Planned Parenthood, it's Mia whom she seeks out and uh, talks about this. And at the very end, well, we didn't want to give anything away, but Mia and her daughter need to leave that house on Winslow, on Winslow Road and are forced uh, by Mrs. Richardson to do so. And Pearl really doesn't want to go. She said, Mia, you, you promised me we could stay. Um, and the way she describes her being in the Richardson home, she describes it as a, it's almost fantastical to her. She describes it as a as kingdom, as a kind of an Oz-like land that she really doesn't want to miss and, and felt she that, that became a home to her. And the same is true for Izzy the other way around. She is entirely shocked. And I think out of this shock also comes, well, what happens towards mm. the end, mm. which we're not, not giving away. The interesting thing is, I mean, the, both mothers are very sure and determined in their mothering style or in their approach. So it's not like they start doubting themselves until they start meeting each other and they see that their kids stray towards the other family and to, mm -hmm. towards the other lifestyle so it's really also a nice expression of that undecidedness the novel is sitting on the fence it never tells you this is the way you have to be as a mom or this is this is the way to best raise your kids both ways are absolutely legit <laughs> and uh but they bring conflicts and the kids start straying and it's also there's a nostalgia where you know i had a, a, a a very effective approach to this or response or like oh when you see your kid doing this you know trying to uh, get into the another family and trying to live a life that's different from your own life you of course you start doubting yourself so it's a very effective dimension that parents maybe i can say that yes. you're both parents um can maybe relate to because you you work hard and you think you do the best thing and then this happens mm-hmm and it is interesting that when um, Elena offers Mia to come work as, at her house as a housekeeper, Mia agrees to do so mainly for her own sake because she says, oh, that, that's a way I can keep an eye on my, on my daughter Pearl and what she's up to. She has her first love interests and so on. She befriends uh, young Moody of the Richardson family and she does, Mia doesn't quite know uh, what's going on. Are they having sex or is this a purely platonic uh, relationship? She doesn't quite know. 
general. Um, but of course, as um, Izzy points out at some point, she's um, not just the housekeeper and sort of merging the two worlds of the two families through this work function. She says, well, you're uh, like an indentured servant, right? And here the issue of race becomes very prevalent again. I mean, this is the legacy of slavery. And um, I mean, the race of... Um, Mia is never specified in the novel. We take her to be white, but we never quite know. And the Hulu series that came out up in 2020 turned that and made her a black woman and Pearl a black daughter. And the the dynamics and the, the power dynamics um, become more obvious through that choice, through the switch of the race. And in, a, in an interview uh, in The Atlantic that I read, Celeste Ng actually talks about this and talks about um, thinking about which race she wanted to attribute to Mia. And she said, initially, I had wanted to write Mia and her daughter Pearl as people of color. Ng, who is Asian American, told uh, the interviewer, I thought of them as people of color because I knew I wanted to talk about race and class. And those things are so intertwined in our country and in our culture but I didn't feel like I was the right person to try to bring in a black woman's uh, experience to the page. Um, so, so she shies away from appropriating um, the voice of the black woman. And she doesn't want to speak for another race. And it's, But I think it's no accident that the issue of race comes in through the custody battle about the Chinese baby and all the discussions yeah. about... Chinese culture, so maybe we could. Yes, I mean that's that's there. it's so we have these two mother figures in the in the center who start merging their households and their family in weird ways, and this goes astray, unsurprisingly. And so we have Mia and Elena, and outside the home, inside the community, though in the bigger framework, we have this scandal that erupts. So Mia meets a coworker, Bibi Chow, who. Um, a Chinese immigrant uh, who got pregnant and who gave up her baby um, at the gas station, who left it to her little daughter after giving birth. And uh, the daughter gets taken up into custody and is, is handed over to the Mikalos, uh, a childless couple who adopt her. Um, and I think the legal battle over this adoption is, is just happening. So it's not finalized. And then Bibi Chow, uh, the, the birth mother and biological mother, decides that she uh, wants to have her baby. And the Mikalos start a shit campaign, <laughs> a shit mm -hmm. storm campaign, arguing that, you know, she's not able to raise her daughter. So this is, again, the question of how do we, who's to judge? How do we best raise our daughter? Who's to, who's to define this? Does a kid need... Uh, a working mom, a stay-at-home mom, what's the best kind of motherhood or parenthood that people can offer? And who's who's to judge? And the novel opens with this. Um, so next to the fire that erupts on the first page, we also have the community talking about the adoption case around Mirabel McCullough or Miling Chow. Mm -hmm. So she, has, she even has two names. And there's a lot of anti-Asian racism stereotypes going on when the McCullough's who have all the privilege and all the connections and the good lawyers when they start battling this. Yes, and the novel follows along the two sides that become prevalent in this court case, right? The one trying um, to get custody for the McCullough's who couldn't have children of their own and have long tried to, to have a child uh, nonetheless and want to adopt a little whom they call Mirabel, who's Mei Ling, baby Chow's 
a kid and baby Chao, who is considered, and I think it's no accident that she's called Bibi, right? Which is reminiscent of the word baby. Um, she is considered by the other side as someone who is not quite capable for taking care of herself, let alone for a child. She is a Chinese immigrant, considered unstable, unreliable. She's poor. She doesn't speak English all that well. The series makes an illegal immigrant out of her, mm. which she's not in the book. And she is pitched as, you know, a single working mom who didn't have enough time to, to you know, raise her child and bring her up in ways that would be um, appropriate against the McCullers who are um, or who embodying sort of the, the nuclear family, right, Where, um, who are aware that a child costs money, there's costs to raising a child and home ownership, again, I think mm. is what they um, associate with good parenthood, right? And they think it's enough because there, there evolves a big discussion about the cultural background of Mei Ling or Mirabel and how each parent could provide that cultural background. Mm. And the should they should they learn Chinese? Uh, should they speak yes. Chinese to her? Yeah. yeah. Yes, they say. Well, we can go on heritage trips when she's older, but for now, she's really liking rice, and our favorite restaurant is Chinese. So it's it's a total cop out, of mm -hmm. course. In, in giving her the kind of cultural background that um, Bibi Chao as the birth mother could provide her with. I don't think it's too much to say or give away uh, if we say that the McCullers uh, will win that case, though that is overtaken by a surprising turn of event yeah, yeah. Uh, at the very end. Yes. So we have these different concepts of motherhood that are played out in, in battles over the children uh, or, or once the children are old enough, they start fending for themselves and start going uh, in, in different ways. And we, we see the mothers left behind looking at what the child does and, and you know, going but falling back on themselves and, and asking themselves, did I, did I make any mistakes? I mean, the big question is, of course, why does Izzy set the house on fire? And she lights little fires everywhere in every kid's bedroom. So there's no mistaking what happens. Izzy does that. Uh, the question is, why does she do it? And we don't get the answer until the end of the novel. In the beginning, everybody says she's just gone around the bend. That's the opening mm -hmm. phrase that you quoted. So we've talked a bit about Elena. Let's talk a bit about Mia, who's also an artist. Uh, one of the provocative questions is, can you be an artist and be a uh, a rooted person at the same time? Um, that's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, she makes compromises for her profession. Absolutely. I mean, Mia is a person who is driven by ideas in her in her work compared to Elena, who's driven by uh, facts, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and she will go wherever she can find these ideas, which evolves into a very nomadic lifestyle where she packs up her daughter. And she has done so from when she was a little baby um, and will drive with her Volkswagen Rabbit um, throughout the country and settle where she feels is right to settle and she'll settle for a little while and do the art she does she is a photographer though interestingly she doesn't consider herself a photographer she considers photography as a tool um, and she will doctor the photographs she does she will dabble with double exposures um, she also destroys the negatives um, as if she didn't quite need to earn money through making photography. And the photographs she makes are 
things like self-portraits where she's wearing a mask, okay? So her photo photography has a lot to do with self-concealment, of not quite showing who one is. This is reminiscent, of course, um, of a photographer like Cindy Sherman, whose major aim is to photograph herself by obscuring herself through mm. putting on masks, mm. costumes, um, and so and so on. She also takes pictures of random homes that she scrapes away with, with a needle. So photography is a, is a tool for her. But photography, and I guess by tradition, is also what promises to reveal secrets, right? And there is this moment where the kids go to an art gallery and see an image which they think of, and, it, and it's actually right, it is Mia with a newborn baby. And the Richardson children are totally flabbergasted, wondering what she is doing there, right? What They say, well, what's your mom, Mia, doing in an art gallery? Is she rich after all? So yeah. has she, what is the mystery there, right? That's where the whodunit comes, comes up again, too. Of course, Mia as an artist, as a photographer, has a female gaze or a double gaze at everything around her. The camera becomes an, a medium for looking at things and also for framing things. And um, to have this character as an artist, also as an artist who's oriented not so much about in, in or interested not so much in money making, but in uh, really performing or ex expressing her artistic eye, of course, also reminds us of the look that we have at Shaker Heights as a community. It also mediates the, the photographic instance. So uh, when Pearl for the first time comes to the Richardson's house, uh, she frames it. She tells what about what she sees in a way that is almost photographic. She says it's almost too good to be true. The lawn too crisp, the colors too bright. And then she walks in and she says the Richardson's almost look as if they had been arranged in a tableau, a still life of perfect homely bliss. So this overemphasis of the framed community as artwork or life as performance really, you know, brings home the artistic quality of observing this, of, of looking at this utopian community in a way uh, yes. that asks us to judge. Yes. And when Elena suggests that uh, Mia should should take family portraits of the Richardson family, uh, Mia declines and says she can't because she's interested in the way the photographer sees the family and not the way the family sees itself, which is ex exactly the kind of photographic tableau that you were just mentioning. Mia is incredibly dangerous um, to Elena because she is interested not only in ideas, but the kind of sparks that fly mm -hmm. with these these ideas and she frequently or several times talks of prairie fires when she talks about her stance towards life and maybe i can i can read a little quotation where that comes up also this is when izzy comes to mia and tries to find the kind of motherly warmness that she doesn't quite find in her her own mother but this is also after bibi chow's child was taken away from her And Mia will say, sometimes just when you think everything is gone, you find a way. Mia wrecked her mind for an explanation. Like after a prairie fire, I saw one years ago when we were in Nebraska. It seems like the end of the world. The earth is all scorched and black and everything green is gone. But after the burning, the soil is richer and new things can She held Izzy at arm's length, wiped her cheek with a fingertip, smoothed her hair one last time. 
People are like that too, you know? They start over, they find a way. And I think that's a big part of what's an inspiration of, of Izzy and going where she's going and burning down the house, the house to start from scratch, to start anew, away from the kind of false, privileged family life that she has gotten to know. So the question is really about also renewal. You know, where do we go from here? Uh, it's, it's quite obvious that the world as is, it doesn't work. So Shaker Heights is a utopian community. Uh, and going back to the founding of the plant community, there's a lot of talk of, about utopia. The utopia um, as in the beautiful place, but the no place at the same time. It doesn't work. It's become obvious that this doesn't work at all. And um, in the opening, I talked about the special issue of America Studio and American Studies. And I'd like to go back to one contribution that struck me back to the present moment. So again, this is the 1990s. And the question is, where, where are we now with uh, Black Lives Matter, with different camps that can't ha find common ground, but it seems can't talk to each other. It's like the, the house is burned down, or it's at least maybe burning, it's set on fire right now. It's a blaze. And when we look back at the present moment in the special issue, uh, Barry Shank, Americanist Barry Shank, writes about his hometown, Bexley, Ohio an internal suburb of Columbus, uh, which sounds just like Shaker Heights, a place with a, quote, reputation for excellent public schools, high property taxes, large and expensive homes, and the official national designation as an urban arboretum, because there's so many trees. And Cenk writes about uh, the violence that, quote, guards our streets. And he doesn't talk about the violence at gunpoint or violent acts that are being committed. He says that the very existence of such a privileged place with a high income taxes, a high property taxes, a large and expensive home is an act of violence. He writes, our comfort is dependent on the violence of massively unequal economic system that almost for 40 years has been funneling money away from some communities and into places like Baxley. And he quotes the public school system, the defunding of government services for the poor around this little utopian space that where people smile. And he concludes about the present moment that obviously, I mean, we don't have all the solutions and the answers to overcoming this division and this uh, dealing with this violence. But the house, it seems, is a place. And in the end of the day, um, he also has a, he has a, has a postscript to his contribution um, after the events of January 6th, where he says, it might sound naive, but when I when I talk about you know, trying to talk to the other people, trying to talk to the other camp, trying to argue with them to also have resonance and effective uh, relations with them. That's what we need to do. We need to start in the small place. We need to start in the face-to-face. -face. We need to start in uh, the everyday meetings and uh, talk to people and not stop talking to people and just, you know, retrench uh, or retreat to the trenches between behind our lines and um, that I think is part of the crisis that uh, Celeste Ng also sees erupting in the 90s uh, where the fire has been burning little fires have been burning for a while now and uh, it seems that right now we live in the moment where political culture in the United States needs to find a way back to building from the cinders. 
You're describing the kind of zooming in onto a locale that, of course, happens in photography also. And it's no accident that the novel is set, uh, for the most part, in a domestic setting and revolves around the, the homes and houses. Um, and whereas we so often think of that place, you know, as a, as a prime place of solidity, of stability, of security and safety, it is one of the most trenchant sites around which socioeconomic disparities um, and racial injustices revolve in the U.S., and that is true historically, but that is very much felt in the present times, too. I mean, so many racialized housing policies, such as, you know, redlining, where um, people of color would not get credit and weren't able to accumulate the kind of intergenerational wealth that mm -hmm. white people were able to accumulate and suffering from that in the, in the long run, or... The mortgage crisis, right, where, where the so-called thrift or building industry in the 1980s and 90s that had made mortgages available to working class and also black uh, men and women faltered and resulted in a great number of defaults and bankruptcies. And that's, of course, a topic that has become incredibly visible during the COVID-19 crisis and then the inequalities that take place in the housing arena, but of course, you know, take place at the same time in healthcare, in education, in the prison system, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's an, there's an obsession and also a, a priming of the American home that's key. And that's related to settling, settling down, um, settling somewhere, being part of a community, but also, you know, fencing yourself off from the community and having your own little space where you can do as you please. And then giving back where you please uh, to the community. Uh, and, to that. and that's where Mia finds her freedom, yeah. right? Um, in, in sort of um, breaking down the walls and moving on and not being tied to an owned home. Because that is so much part of that, you know, the kind of American dream that has so long now been unraveled as a myth, really. The, the own, owned home, one's own property was a, and still is in many ways, a mainstay of that um, dream And the Winslow home in which Mia and Pearl at least live for a little while is very different. It's a rental. It's a duplex. It's called half a house as if it's not quite a real home. Mm. It tries to obscure its halfness by having one entrance. And only on the inside, you realize there is two entrances and there's uh, two parties living in that house. It's the kind of house that maintains it, its outer appearance, just like the nation does on a much larger scale, right? Where to maintain the value of a place, but it does so by obscuring the kind of class differences that are very prevalent when we look at the kind of lives that are lived within the houses. And even Elena Richardson realizes that at some point that she says, you can never look into a house, you can never know what kind of lives, what kind of hardships people live there. But Celeste Ng's novel gives us glimpses into that. And it's mm. interesting, towards the end of the novel, Elena and her family, when their own house burns down, um, they move into this little house on Winslow Road. And it's a total, not a total, but a beginning, maybe, of a switch of perspective. Mm -hmm. Elena hears different voices. She sees different things. 
And after Izzy disappears, after setting the fire, that's how the novel ends. She sets her mind on what she calls finding Izzy. But I think that's a stand in or an extended metaphor also for finding new ways of living the kind of community you've been alluding to and trying to find better ways of you know, racial interrelatedness and so Mm. on that is not based on all those old, you know, racist, white supremacy um, power structures. Yeah, the key, I think, is to make make privileged people aware of their privilege and give them, this is what you also get in in anti-racism trainings. Um, it, It really, it really is the key to to make people aware of their privileges and start talking to them from there. And also, I mean, help them go through the, t- the, the vulnerability and the fragility that comes with that awareness. And that's what we've been seeing in these last couple of years. Yes. And I think by not taking sides, the novel engages in that too. It, it allows its readers um, to form their own opinions. Again, the series is more explicit on where it stands, but the novel isn't. And I actually think of that as one of its strengths, mm-hmm. um, that it makes uh, its readers think more in their own ways. Plus, there's a little intertext that we haven't talked about that I find appealing um, because, of course, so Mia's daughter's called Pearl. And Celeste Inge has talked about how she plays with Hawthorne's the classic Scarlet Letter in the 19th century text, um, how it's one of her favorite reads and how she also chooses a single mother uh, who has to, you know, find her way in a community and who is on the inside, on the outside at the same time and who is subjected to gossip, gossip all the time. And what I like about this intertextual reference is, of course, that um, we have a focus on Pearl and her and her future. So, of course, the question is always, what will the kids do with the knowledge they have or the knowledge they don't have? But we also have this this discourse around present day Hester as an artist who can afford to go somewhere else. Whereas Hawthorne's uh, Hester Prynne, she has to stay put. Uh, she wears the scarlet letter. She lives in shame. Um, she's I, I always think of her as a surprisingly stable woman despite the fact that she's living in shame. So I never had the feeling uh, from the way that Hawthorne writes her that she's actually, she has a lot of remorse uh, or that she suffers badly. She lives on the outskirts. She worries about her daughter and uh, she, yeah, gets to have her own happy ending or not. That's the question with the Scarlet Letter. But the the key is, you know, there's a community and she's done something. You have one female character who has strayed, who is cast out. And in Ings, and in Ings' version, even if we read Mia as somebody who has strayed because she um, doesn't conform to um, heteronormative standards or to standards of motherhood, she lives differently, uh, and she she deals with um, female uh, gender norms or feminine gender norms differently. Even if we read her as somebody who has strayed, she still she has agency. So as a modern day Hester, she would be you know, really an artist who goes, goes her own fence for herself and uh, only has herself to answer to. And of course, her daughter to answer to as well. So you can't, I, it seems that you can't get out of that. You know, there's only so much freedom you can have. If you have kids or if you have a family or you have friendships, you are going to be bound up with moral questions of, am I doing everything right? Is this okay? 
I mean, what I, what I think Mia has understood is that a place or a home place is not so much about the material place that she lives in, but she says at some point, my place is the child, right? Mm -hmm. It's the child that gives her an identity and a sense of belonging. And while someone like Hester Prynne, I agree that she's staying put, but at the same time, there's always this threat or maybe even promise of expulsion from the Puritan society in her case. Um, so suffering comes with that and it's very much in the line of a kind of Adam and Eve story, right? But at the same time, there's knowledge that comes with that. And that's mm. something that's very important to Mia and her daughter, Pearl, who is described as a very bookish person, um, was a really smart learner um, and wants to get a good education. It's the knowledge about what it means to do something that society doesn't approve of, that espouses an image of motherhood that doesn't um, accord to the norm, and what it means to be in the eyes of normative society, be immoral in some sense. Um, but I totally agree. Mia takes yeah. a great pride and freedom in that. And it only makes sense that they're, I mean, they are driven away in a sense, but they're also driving away. And we know, we just know, I think, as readers that she and Pearl are going to land in a better place <laughs> than this really good place of Shaker Heights, the, right? Shaker Heights 2.0, maybe, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a racially inclusive, egalitarian, truly egalitarian uh, American suburb, if there is such a place. That's a big question. Is there? Is it possible to reach equality, uh, to acknowledge diversity, to erase the systemic racism in the U.S.? Is it possible to have that kind of community, the, the you know, utopian Shaker Heights? Yes, and the, the novel obviously doesn't answer that question, no, exactly. and it, it never and, could. Exactly, um, and I mean, we do have to leave it also not only to us and to our readers, uh, to our listeners, but also to the futures that are ahead of us. Uh, I guess it's all up to us to keep working in the little places and um, attend to the little fires that are everywhere. I think. The domestic is where it's at, though it's yeah. often looked down upon, but it is a, you know, it is the place where people live their lives and form yes. their opinions and their perspectives onto, onto things. And as we discussed earlier, this is very much a novel of perspectives. And that includes the possibility for its reader to change perspectives, at least to yeah. a degree. So the domestic is where it's at. That's a great... <laughs> <laughs> Closing point, uh, I think um, I, I can thank you for um, a great conversation about Little Fires Everywhere. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to continuing our conversations in another form. Thank you, Julia. So do I. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.